thank you that you speak to us through your word. As we come to look at it now, please would your spirit be at work in us, helping us to understand it and uh, to respond rightly to it and love you more as a result of reading it. Amen. Hey, mummy, shouted Veruca Salt suddenly. I've decided I want a squirrel. Get me one of those squirrels. Don't be silly, sweetheart, said Mrs. Salt. These all belong to Mr. Wonka. I don't care about that, shouted Veruca. I want one. All I've got at home is two dogs and four cats and six bunny rabbits and two parakeets and three canaries and a green parrot and a turtle and a bowl of goldfish and a cage of white mice and a silly old hamster. I want a squirrel. Well, moments after that incident in Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Veruca Salt gets thrown down the garbage chute by 100 angry squirrels. And I'm pretty sure it's like a thinly veiled cautionary tale. Apparently, in uh, 1964, when that book was published, society thought it wasn't a good thing for people to always get everything that they wanted and to want things that other people had. But I think that seems to be increasingly less the case today. It certainly didn't seem to be the case two days ago on Black Friday, the day uh, after Thanksgiving in the US, which is the biggest shopping day of the year on the other side of the pond. And I think it's increasingly influential here as well. I don't know about you, but I felt like all of last week my email inbox was completely jam-packed with uh, with people emailing me, Good Friday, uh, not Good Friday, that's a completely different day, with (laughs) Black Friday deals. So much of what we want, uh, so much of that, I think, is really a kind of keeping up with the Joneses. As someone once said, people buying things they don't need with money that they don't have to impress people they don't like. So often we want things because other people have them. And in today's society, I think we're increasingly told that that's actually a good thing, that we should want more and more and more and try to get it. And the 10th commandment, upon which we finish our series on the Ten Commandments this week, cuts straight to the heart of that issue. And speaking of cutting straight to the heart of things, it cuts straight to our hearts as well. Other commandments talk explicitly about actions. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. And while it's true that Jesus does apply those things to our hearts in the New Testament, the Tenth Commandment goes there explicitly right away. It's not about our actions, it's about our thought lives. Perhaps you'd turn uh, to it with me. It's on page 78 of the Red Bibles. Page 78, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We're not to covet. We're not to desire, to yearn to possess what belongs to another. And it's not just material possessions either. Look at how exhaustive that list is. Your neighbor's house, don't covet property. Your neighbor's wife, uh, don't covet relationships. Male or female servant, ox or donkey, This does speak about belongings, but also, I'd suggest, about uh, social status, jobs, uh, employees. And just when you're looking for loopholes, thinking, oh, Nick, it doesn't actually say that I'm not allowed to cover this, so I'm fine to do that, it goes on to say, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
that does include all material possessions, but what about things like talents and attributes, qualities, uh, opportunities, privileges even? Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, if not, why not? Firstly, coveting doesn't deliver. We're not to covet because coveting doesn't deliver. Often when we covet something, uh, I think we're, we're really telling ourselves, even if we don't acknowledge it, that if only I had that thing, I would be happy. I wouldn't want for any more. But that's not the reality. In reality, any satisfaction given by getting something that we covet is only fleeting. It's temporary. All too soon, we'll begin to cast our eyes around, notice other things that other people have that we don't, and want those things as well. John Rockefeller, an American business magnate who in his day was worth in today's money 392 billion US dollars, was asked how much money it takes for a person to be really satisfied. His answer, just a little bit more. If our hearts are set on worldly things, we will never have enough. And the Bible agrees with that. In Ecclesiastes, we read, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Far from satisfying our desires, gaining what we covet only breeds more covetousness. It's a bit like being thirsty and trying to quench our thirst uh, by drinking seawater. If you're on a desert island and there's no fresh water available, you're going to get pretty thirsty pretty quickly. And despite the fact that you're surrounded by masses of water as far as the eye can see, it's not going to do you any good because we can't drink seawater. While it sounds a little counterintuitive, drinking seawater actually dehydrates us rather than quenching our thirst. The more we drink of it, the thirstier we become. And it's similar with covetousness. Gaining what we covet doesn't quench our covetousness. It only makes us thirsty for more and more and more. And not only does coveting lead to more coveting, it's also, if you like, a kind of gateway sin that opens up the door to all kinds of other sinful behavior. I can see how breaking the 10th commandment could lead to us breaking all of the other commandments in the 10 commandments. Uh, perhaps it's the 10th commandment for a reason. First nine commandments, don't do any of these things. Then the 10th commandment, don't do this thing, it's bad in and of itself, and it could lead to you doing all of the others as well. Indeed, many of the most notorious sins in the Bible really began with coveting. Think of the very first of all human sins in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 reads, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. Eve's interaction with the snake uh, left her wanting something that wasn't hers. Not just the fruit, but also the wisdom that she sh saw she would gain from eating it. Desirable for gaining wisdom, it says. And actually, that word desire there and the word covet in our commandment are actually the exact same word in the language it was originally written in. We could say that Eve breaking the 10th commandment led to her breaking the 8th, you shall not steal. And what terrible effects hers and Adam's actions have had as they've echoed down through the ages since then. A long time after that, King David, uh, the great Old Testament king, was walking around on his roof and he saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, bathing. And he didn't just see her, he wanted her for himself. He coveted her. And that uh, unchecked desire led to him sleeping with her. 
to trying to cover up the truth when she became pregnant, and eventually to having her husband killed. His breaking of the Tenth Commandment opened up the door to him breaking the Seventh Commandment, adultery, the Ninth, false testimony, and the Sixth, murder. Still later on in the Bible, there was a man who coveted money, and that led him to uh, helping himself to money from his group of friends' communal purse. And perhaps from there, it didn't seem like such a huge leap when he was offered the reward of 30 pieces of silver to betray his group's leader, Jesus, into the hands of those who would have him killed. There are many, many other biblical examples, and it's been the same ever since. Individuals, uh, groups, nations even, wanting things for themselves that aren't theirs. Power, pleasure, money, oil, land. It's happened time and time and time again. Perhaps we can pretty easily excuse a little bit of coveting in ourselves. It's not hurting anyone, we say. I don't actually have to act on it. But history shows that it's a very slippery slope from coveting into all kinds of other sinful activities. In coveting, we open ourselves up to the temptation to act on that covetousness in a sinful way. Even if it leads to nothing else, though, even if it stops at wanting something that belongs to our neighbor, that still, in and of itself, goes right to the heart of God's commandments. Jesus sums up all of God's commandments in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. He says that it's summed up in two great commandments. Firstly, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he says the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Says that there are no two greater commandments than those two commandments. All of the commandments ultimately boil down to loving God and loving our neighbor. And coveting strikes right at the heart of that because it involves us misplacing our love. And that's our second reason uh, not to covet. Firstly, it doesn't deliver. Secondly, it misplaces our love. The first commandment back in uh, verse 3 of chapter 20 in Exodus says, you shall have no other gods before me. God says, set your heart on me. Don't have anything else or anyone else as God in my place. I'm to be first in your life. And what would be completely wrong coming from anyone else is entirely appropriate from him. He is the mighty God who has nonetheless chosen to enter into a special relationship with his people, Israel. Who else could they rightly worship but him? You might think, Nick, thank you very much, but we've actually had that commandment back in the first week of our series. We know all about the first commandment. What does idolatry have to do with covetousness? Well, actually, in a sense, the tenth commandment has as much to do about idolatry as the first commandment does. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul starts out by talking about the heavenly focus that believers should have in Christ. And he goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. If I'm coveting something, whether that be someone's uh, relationship or their job, their possessions, their social status, their talents, their attributes, or anything else, I'm actually coveting that thing. I've turned it into an idol. If I'm spending time covetously wanting something that someone else has, I'm worshipping that thing. And God insists that worship belongs to him alone. Covetous misplaces our love for God. 
what should be directed at him is directed elsewhere instead, to things that don't satisfy and which won't last. And that's the wrong thing to do, not just in light of who God is, but also in light of what he's done. Back in uh, verse 2 of chapter 20 in Exodus, God said both who he was and what he'd done before giving the Ten Commandments to his people. Obedience to God's commandments is, right, is the right response because of who he is and because of what he's done. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God had uh, chosen his people, Israel. He'd rescued them from 400 years of slavery. He'd defeated their enemies. He'd given uh, them freedom. Having been given all of these wonderful gifts from God, they weren't to then spend time wanting something that someone else had instead. Imagine if this Christmas you were feeling quite generous and you decided to buy your friend a private jet for Christmas, as you do. Uh, they say thank you and they go about happily uh, using their, their private jet, making the most of that. But after a while, they start getting really jealous of their next door neighbor's toddler's scooter. They see them riding around on it in the, in the driveway and they, they get really upset that they don't have one of those. That's just not the right response, having been given a private jet, is it? And you might be thinking, Nick, that's a little bit of an extreme example. But keep in mind the fact that here in Exodus, the people who are given this commandment have just been in a position where they've been given their freedom, they've had their enemies defeated without their raising a finger, they've been provided with this miraculous food from heaven when there was no food in the desert, and then they get all upset and jealous because the Egyptians have cucumbers and they don't. Cucumbers. Seriously, true story. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 11. We may frown at them, we may tut and shake our heads at the Israelites, and well we might because that is clearly the wrong response in light of what God had given them. But let's be careful of pointing the finger at them without considering what God has done for us and what we might be at risk of coveting nonetheless. God doesn't give his commandment not to covet without context. He's not some God who goes around pointing the finger at people and giving uh, bizarre commandments just, just at a whim for no reason. No, this commandment, like the other nine commandments, is only given in light of who God is and what he has done. It's not to be followed legalistically or in any way to try and earn a right relationship with God. Instead, it's to be followed in light of who God is and what he's already done for us. So in breaking the 10th commandment, we break the first of those great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. God first loved us and we're to love him in response, which includes not coveting things uh, that belong to someone else. But it's not only that. Coveting certainly hinders our relationship with God, but it also hinders our relationship with our neighbor. Loving our neighbor and coveting what belongs to them are mutually exclusive. We can't be doing both of those things at the same time. Uh, take Stan and Florence, for example. Stan and Florence are both lawyers. They work in the same law firm, uh, have done for a number of years, and they're friends. But Florence uh, has a, is, is slightly senior to Stan. She has a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more authority, a little bit more money. And over time, Stan notices Florence being in meetings that he would quite like to be in, uh, representing people he would like to represent. He starts wanting her job 
for himself. He starts coveting her position, her status. Uh, it starts with him wanting, wanting a thing that she has, her job. But it very quickly and naturally affects the relationship that they have with each other. He starts getting jealous of her, uh, resenting her even for having the position that she has. He even starts undermining her uh, at work, uh, subtly casting uh, sidelong questioning glances at his work colleagues when she's talking in meetings. Coveting things belonging to our neighbours doesn't occur in a vacuum. It doesn't happen outside of the relationship that we have with them. Coveting will always affect our relationships. We can't both love our neighbour and covet things that are theirs. Our hearts cannot both be set on loving them and trying to gain what is theirs. In his uh, letter in the New Testament, James says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So we're not to covet because it doesn't deliver and because it misplaces our love. But coveting comes so naturally to us. We so naturally want more. So how are we to go about not coveting? I have uh, three top tips for us. The first one is be self-aware. There's a story about a, a boy and his camel in, in the desert on a cold night, a little bit like tonight. Uh, they're there in the desert, the boy's in his tent, and the camel is outside and it's, and it's pretty cold. And eventually she says to the boy, do you mind if I come into the tent? And the boy says, that's ridiculous. You're, you're a camel. And there's not enough room for both of us in this tent. You're the camel. You stay outside. That, that seems to put an end to it. But, but a little while later, the camel says, well, do you mind if I just put my head into the tent, warm, warm my head up a bit? And the boy thinks, well, I suppose that's not too much to ask. There is, there is room in here, yet, yet that's fine. Um, and so the camel puts her head in the tent. And a short while after that, the camel says, I mean, would it be okay if I, if I put my neck in as well? And the boy thinks to himself, well, I mean, there is enough room. I don't see uh, how I can really say no to her. The problem was, you might be able to see where this is going, uh, before too long, the whole camel was in the tent, and the boy was squeezed out of the tent. The boy wouldn't let the camel come into the tent all in one go in the beginning, but when it happened gradually over time, he didn't really notice it until he was already outside the tent. And I think it can be similar with coveting. It may, be that we, it, it may be that sometimes we might all at once see something that someone else has and develop an unhealthy desire to possess that thing. I wouldn't put that past us, but I suspect it's more likely to happen gradually over time. Someone we come into regular contact with has a relationship that we don't have, or they have a job that we want, or perhaps they have a really nice house, and we think, oh, well, that's nice for them, isn't it? And it's not until a little bit later that we start thinking, well, actually, I would quite like that thing. And later on again, do they really deserve to have that? And later on, why can't I have that? I definitely deserve it. It wouldn't have been our initial thought, but it can happen over time without us realizing. And that's where being self-aware is helpful. It won't be something that comes naturally to all of us. Some of us are more naturally introspective than others, yet it will be a habit that's well worth developing. We've mentioned that this commandment applies explicitly to our hearts and minds, and those are the things that we need to keep an eye on. 
Perhaps we need to do a bit of a mental checklist of our desires and wants. What are the things that we find ourselves daydreaming about? Where do our minds wander um, when we're not thinking about anything else? How do we feel about the fact that so-and-so has such-and-such, which we know that we would quite like? Where might we be at risk of coveting? We all want more, and it's very natural for us to slip into coveting unless we're being self-aware, identifying risks, praying for the Spirit's work in us to help uh, guard us from temptation. It's not for no reason that we say, we pray, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer. So self-awareness is important and helpful in this area, but I'd suggest that it's not the most important thing when it comes to guarding against covetousness. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid that I'm one of those people that when they see a big red push in case of an emergency kind of button, wants to press the button straight away, emergency or not. I know I'm not supposed to press the button, but the more I look at it, the more I want to press it. Similarly, I don't think that thinking, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, is the best way of not coveting. Instead of thinking that we're not to do one thing, we should do something else instead, replacing our wrong desire of possessions of various sorts with a right desire for something greater. Another way of avoiding covetousness is to be satisfied. Being satisfied is an opposite of being covetous. Instead of wanting what others have, we're happy with what we have. Before God gave his Old Testament people this command, he'd already given them a a relationship with himself. He'd already given them their freedom from slavery. They could be satisfied with the amazing gifts that God had given them instead of coveting earthly things from other people. We have even more reason uh, to be satisfied if we're God's people today. Unlike them, now we're at a point where God has given us the most precious thing at his disposal. The most precious thing that there is, actually. He's given us the gift of his son, who died and was raised to life so that we could be in relationship with him. There is no greater cause for satisfaction than that. We thought earlier about uh, feeding covetousness being like drinking salt water to try and quench our thirst. If we want more and we all do, we should go to Jesus for satisfaction. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in John's Gospel, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And later he says to her, everyone who drinks this water, that is the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Don't be covetous, be satisfied. Something that I find helpful in achieving that kind of satisfaction is to be thankful. Something Tom was reminding us to do earlier in the service. We're told that all good things we have come from God. We can be thankful to him for every good thing that we have. Maybe it would be helpful at the end of each day to, to write a list of five things that we're thankful for. Giving thanks is a great way of seeing what we have and being satisfied with it. And we can't be satisfied and be covetous at the same time. Now, please don't, un- don't uh, misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that we'll always have all of the material things that we do need. Some of us will find ourselves in genuine need. And it's not wrong to want things or to work to get them. Someone's written, 
The covetousness, which God forbids, does not exclude those who are downtrodden from wanting, dreaming, and working for freedom. Not all wanting is coveting. But the kind of want that is okay does not rule out satisfaction. Paul writes in Philippians, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Coveting uh, leaves us discontent and unsatisfied. But if we're following Jesus, we're to be satisfied in him. But we're not only to be thankful in response to what God has done for us, we're also to imitate him in the giving of it. It's our final point. To avoid covetousness, we can be self-aware, you can be satisfied, we can also be sacrificial. There's a sense in, in which when we covet something that someone else has, one of their possessions, we're seeking, in a way, to imitate them in that they have that thing. Surely part of the reason that people are included in advertisements for material things is so that we'll want those things more. We want them not just because of the thing itself that's being advertised, but because we want to be like these people. We want not just to have the thing, but we want to have these people's enjoyment of the thing. We want to be as attractive as them wearing it. We want to be as comfortable as them using it. But when we covet, we seek to imitate the wrong person. We're not to imitate our neighbors in what they have. We're to imitate God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to be imitators of God, following his example in both love and sacrifice. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us, and where to give sacrificially also. We'll not spend long on this point. If you want to think more about uh, the way we can give satisf- uh, sacrificially, then I'd encourage you to go onto our website and listen to Paul's and Mark's sermons from our Giving Sundays last month. But suffice it to say that if we're engaged in thinking about how we can give what we have, we're much less likely to be consumed with thinking about how we can obtain what other people have. Developing an attitude of sacrificial giving is a great way to guard against coveting, and it's well worth guarding against, because while coveting may result in us getting the things we want, it will never result in us getting the satisfaction that we want, which can be found, if we know where to look for it, in the unimaginable riches which we already have in Christ, if we're following him. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the great giver. Thank you that you have given us every single good gift uh, that we have. Help us to acknowledge that and to be thankful for it. Help us to be satisfied with those things uh, that you've given us ultimately uh, with your son, Jesus. Help us to be self-aware uh, when it comes to, to covetousness within ourselves. Please would your work be, please would your spirit be at work in us, uh, convicting us of areas in which we've fallen short in this area, highlighting um, things that we need to be aware of. Please help us to be satisfied in you and uh, lead us to be more so day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.